1: Hello everybody and welcome to a special programme on Haggerty Radio Le Mans, where we're going to try and unlock uh, some of, not the secrets, but uh, at least some of the difficulties of following Le Mans 2021. This is a time of great change for the ACO and the FIA World Endurance Championship and the world's greatest endurance racing. And that change is happening at the very front of the field, with a new top prototype category which forms part of a new global prototype vision that will bring the European and world side of things in to lockstep with IMSA and their vision of that top category. You'll be delighted to know that it's not me that's got to explain this, we have two real experts from race car Engineering, first of all its editor and uh, long-time contributor to us here on Radio Show Limited and Haggerty Radio Le Mans. Hello to Andrew Cotton. Hello, Andrew. How are you?
0: I'm very well, thank you. How are you?
1: I- I'm very well, uh, indeed. And we've also got, again, from race car Engineering, Stuart Mitchell back with us this year. Stuart, thanks for joining us again. Have you had a-, a busy year since we last spoke?
2: Hello, hello. Thanks for having me on. And, yeah, absolutely, we have. And we've got lots to talk about today, so should be fun.
1: Well, Stuart's particular expertise in engines and we'll be throwing him some what I think are quite hard questions and he'll be trying to pick the bones out of what uh, what we are going to talk about. Andrew, let's start with you first of all and uh, accepting that some people are listening to us here on Haggerty Radio Le Mans who probably don't follow all of the WEC or IMSA or the ELMS season, but they're here for the big one at Lamont. Um, A potted history of LMH, which is the umbrella title for the new global prototypes uh, that we will see in the next few years. And then we'll go on to talk about Hypercar, which is the ACO's version of it. It's, It's all about convergence. It's all about all playing in the same sandpit, effectively, isn't it?
0: It is. So basically what they're trying to do is have a prototype that can race anywhere in the world. Um, They've reduced the costs massively from the old LMP1 era. uh, And the manufacturers have taken to this really, um, you know, they've they've really embraced it. And we're seeing a a whole uh, swathe of new manufacturers joining Le Mans. So it's fantastic for them. So basically what they're looking to do is introduce uh, a global uh, prototype, and you can bring pretty much whatever you want, they're following the old GT3, the original GT3 regulations, bring what you want and we'll balance it. So to make their job a little bit easier, they've set maximum downforce levels, um, maximum drag levels, or sorry, minimum drag levels, and maximum power, they've, they've balanced the weight, and you can bring a prototype hybrid, prototype non-hybrid, road car hybrid, road car non-hybrid, Uh, and you can race in their championship they have a window of performance which is clearly defined and relatively simple to hit uh for uh, a manufacturer design team
1: so so you said one one prototype but in fact you've already mentioned four different rule sets there which we will possibly need to delve into in a little while um Those Some of those are extremely different concepts. And and, and Stuart, in terms of the motive power unit, hybrid and non-hybrid, but what about the engine regulations? Is there a degree of freedom there as well that might provide us with some variety?
2: There is in a sense. And actually, I think it's probably more effective for some manufacturers to use this as a platform to develop road car engines directly. So if you bring a road car engine, there are different uh, elements of that that are a little bit more free in the sense that because you produced it for the road, you're not going to be making enormous changes just to bring it to the track um, and actually it'll push the road car world of engines a little bit further on in terms of efficiency um, and effective brake horsepower per litre um, and also the weight as well because of, obviously in racing you need the lightweight to, uh, to progress and to, to make performance better.
1: Now, you've, looked, you've both looked at the regulations as of high. I'm sure they made more sense to you than I But, Stuart, what you're seeing there then, does that mean that there's a potential for a performance advantage, which, of course, everybody, that's what everybody is looking for, um, in the same way as the, the stock block IndyCar engine was exploited by Ilmor and Mercedes-Benz a few years ago? Is there something there that stands out to you that says, oh, build a road car engine because you get X, Y, and Z"?
2: In a sense, yes, and in a sense, no. So in a sense that a road car engine will have to be produced at a certain volume to make sense to put it onto the road. um, And also it has to be costed to make sense to put it on the road as well. Um, There are some sort of advanced techniques and technologies that you maybe don't want to implement because it would be too expensive and your road car would suddenly be, uh, you know, out of the threshold of what you wanted to sell it for. But in the same way that we've seen in other places, like you've just mentioned, if you can bring that technology to the road and it makes sense to build something that is as advanced as a race car engine in this kind of prototype category would be, um, then yes, you would have essentially more freedoms because they would uh, allow you to run it at spec, essentially, um, or close to. Um, and if you've got that high spec on the road, then yeah, you can bring it to the track.
1: And it, it, in... Stark terms, when you're talking about volume, you're talking about numbers, how many engines are you talking about? So therefore how many road cars would air manufacture? Is this in the in the tens, in the hundreds, or the thousands?
2: Um, I'm not sure at this point because they, the the idea was to bring in sort of Group N Group A kind of uh, concept to oh, it yeah. in the same way that the World Rally Championship has, where you have to produce, uh, you know, 250 of a certain special edition, or you have to have 2,500 units of it on order right. um, over the course, or in production over the course of the coming decade or something like that so that's really that's really left up to them to to negotiate at this point because no one's actually waved a flag saying you know i'm going to bring a road car engine um for them to say okay if it is road car then you have to produce so many of them otherwise it doesn't qualify there'll be discussions about that coming forward
1: and in a departure for the aco and the fia in recent years not just um linear piston engines allowed here there is a a little part of the regulations that takes us back all the way to Mazda in 1991.
2: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So the return of rotary is, is, it's potentially there. We don't know just yet. No one's waving their flag saying I'm definitely going to (laughs) produce a rotary engine at this point, but rotary engines have seen a massive resurgence and they're not in the road car world, as many of these listeners will know. Um, they've had a resurgence in the world of UAVs, so unmanned aerial vehicles and drones of sorts are using um, rotary engines because they are very efficient and they're very power dense in a very narrow window of operation. And so they use them either to get a get a craft to hover, um, obviously staying at the same RPM and just keeping it in, in the air, so for s- surveillance and things like that, um, and also, you can use it in this case, which is what I imagine it might be used for, as a range extender device. So, in a very narrow window of operation, it'll just be spinning away. It won't be revving up and revving down because it won't be connected to the gearbox or anything. And what it'll do is it will charge an e-drive system that will then power, uh, will actually wow. charge then the batteries yeah. or whatever other energy storage device they choose.
1: Wow. That's that's really interesting tech, and and really absolutely the way that. Le Mans, all the way back to 1923 has always been trying to change people's minds about technology. Fantastic stuff. So, Andrew, it sounds to the person here talking to you at the moment, being me, that what the ACO have tried to do here is to to provide as many options as possible. And in that way, not too dissimilar to the old lmp one hybrid to allow original equipment manufacturers, car automotive manufacturers, OEMs, you'll hear us talk about, um, allow them to be able to align their racing programmes with their road car programmes and utilise that for marketing purposes. In that respect, is this a marketing-led formula, LMH, um, and particular hypercar, uh, rather than an engineering-led?
0: That's a difficult one to answer because... Uh, all racing at the moment is heading towards, uh, particularly manufacturer racing, is heading towards marketing. Um, I think Toyota is primarily funded by the uh, hybrid department back in uh, Japan. And so theirs is a very engineering-led program. But uh, for the other route into the global prototype category, which we haven't yet got onto, uh, which is LMDH, that is very much marketing-led. Le Mans has traditionally set itself as a test bed of technology. So if you have a 24 hour race, you want to bring your technology and you want to prove it in competition against others. And that was primarily where LMP1 was so glorious. Um, When all the manufacturers turned up, they had supercapacitors, they had batteries, they had flywheels in terms of storage capacity uh, or storage devices. Um, Then you had all the different uh, configurations of engines and all the different fuels that that, uh, people brought right now we're looking at a very uncertain future uh, in the road car department and so the aco and the fia really need to set themselves up as a test bed but they can't go down the really expensive route so i think what they've done is kept the regulations as open as they possibly can for the least amount of money that they can get away with and i think in that respect they've succeeded and certainly you can judge that by the amount of manufacturers that have signed up to this rule set
1: well, we'll talk about the future in LMDH a little bit later on. Well, let's concentrate on 2021 then and what we have in the top category at the moment. Effectively, three different answers to the question. One of them, and we'll take this first because then we can get it out of the way. One of them, Stuart, is not going to be around for anything other than than this Le Mans and this season of WEC. And that is the Alpine. Essentially... It, it is born, ironically, given what's happening in the future with LMDH, of an LMP2 chassis which became the Rebellion R13 uh, LMP1 without the hybrid and, and competed against the the Porsches and and, and the Audis uh, in its lifetime and is now reborn again, recycled that Rebellion, perhaps we should say, as an Alpine Alpine, the the uh, performance arm of uh, the Renault. Group Now, now that car's hamstrung in a couple of ways, but it's still a very, very good racing car. And in particular, the engine is a proven unit using, as it does, the British-built Gibson engine.
2: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. That that Gibson engine, of course, is an evolution of the engine that all the LMP2 cars have. Um, It's slightly bigger. That's uh, a four and a half liters, but it is a fantastic piece of kit. And Gibson have proven their technology time and time again in a naturally aspirated 90 degree V8 compa- uh, shape, essentially. So, um, yeah, the evolution of that car and in particular that team has been quite interesting because, you know, going into this category with a pure race engine um, that is essentially kind of off the shelf. Um, and ready to go and supported by Gibson uh, means that they they can go in with this to this Le Mans with a lot of confidence um, because of all the data that Gibson have and how well they've produced um, all of the other engines across the LMP2 field. Um, but of course, there's still Le Mans, you know, there's there is still anything can happen and anything can put you out of the race in, in just a second. So uh, provided they keep it on the straight and narrow, um, they could have a pretty good fight on their hands.
1: Now, as I said, that that car, Andrew, uh, is is in the top class for this year. The top class being LMH, um, and the cars within it this year being termed as hypercars. That's the ACO's nomenclature uh, for that. Um, but that car is is by no means out of contention. Uh, they have had to. Uh, they have had to overcome some issues, not least the fact that it was built to a rule set that only has a 75-litre fuel tank capacity, which probably means it'll do at least one lap fewer each fuel stint, and that means uh, probably an extra fuel stop every 11 stops, is what I read in your wonderful uh, magazine. It's up against a, a true privateer effort in Glickenhaus and the full works effort of Toyota. Let's take Glickenhaus first, because... This is an interesting one. Jim Glickenhouse, very successful in the movie industry. He loves cars, brought up at the same sort of time uh, as certainly I was in the, in the 60s and the 70s and was drawn to Le Mans by some of those battles. Has been a Ferrari aficionado for quite some time. This, for many people, will be the first time that people have heard of Glickenhouse, But in fact, he's been around the motorsport scene and in fact building his own cars, uh, very low volume cars, for quite some time.
0: Well, he has. Uh, He it basically has taken the spirit of the 1960s and brought it forward to the modern day so what what he loves is or what he absolutely adores from the 1960s was that people were able to drive their cars to the circuit you're able to then race and then drive them home again now the hypercar is not going to be like that certainly not but his gt3 cars that he races at the nürburgring and primarily in the 24 hours but uh in the what they call it now the LN, nls um You can do that. Uh, And he's produced the uh, 003C. Uh, He also competes in uh, Dakar uh, with the uh, with his boot. And he's going into all sorts of alternative fuels for that. Uh, But this then is the hypercar. His ultimate dream is to win Le Mans uh, as a privateer and really rekindle those those romantic images of the 1960s and Le Mans.
1: Now, American flagged uh, effort uh, and indeed the, the headquarters are in uh, Connecticut. But uh, as far as the car's concerned, Stuart, very much a, a European and a multinational effort with the chassis coming from Italy and the engine coming from uh, France, I believe. People who, am I right in thinking that's the same people who, who did, you talked about World Rally earlier, who, who, who've done World Rally engines in the past?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of Peugeot's success in the World Rally Championship uh, was was thanks to the efforts of People Motors, who, like you said, are, are a French company. That's their sort of specialist uh, area, if you like, is it um, is turbocharged race engines. So uh, when Glickenhaus went to Pepo to to talk to them about the project, um, it, it was a great partnership. Really, they have such a great history in producing uh, inline four turbochargers, uh, turbocharged engines. So Glickenhaus essentially has two of them um, in that they've, they've just married to a a single crankshaft and a single output. So um, it's very well specced in that sense. Um, He's also gone for a a setup, which allows him to, to move the potential of the car around, given that he knew that he was going into a balance of performance category. this is really important is that the, the potential of that engine can be wound up and wound down depending on how BOP falls on the day. So, he believes that this setup and certainly, you know, it, it's a nice, safe setup um, should the BOP start shifting in or out of the, the favor of the, the other cars. Um, he'll be able to keep up and um, it's going to be a, a really good, uh, good setup for them because the redundancy means that, you know, if you if anything happens and they need to use a little bit more fuel, a little bit less fuel or however things sort of pan out um, as we get over to the beginning of the before the beginning of the race, he'll be able to um, yeah to, to dial it in, essentially.
1: And in some people's minds, I would say crucially, without the complication of a hybrid system, this is a rear-wheel drive, two-wheel drive only racing car that many of us would see as rather traditional. Even the styling at the front, uh, very reminiscent to me of a, uh, a Chevron B16 or, or something like that, Ferraris from the 60s and 70s, and not necessarily the worst thing in a 24-hour race. Keep it simple. People must know exactly what they're doing in building endurance engines because they've got so much uh, experience in World Rally, which is effectively an off-road endurance race. Uh, And in that respect, um, there's less to go wrong, uh, fewer things that they have to learn, and fewer things that they've got to get right within that 24-hour race.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And so going for a simple concept in what is, you know, the the top class now, it's, it's quite interesting because with they're going to have boost curves that they've got to run the car, run the engine to. And so if they do, if they are able to have extra capacity in the potential of the engine in terms of output, um, it means that they can be more conservative in, in a lot of other areas. And that also allows them to, you know, spec the rest of the cars, as you guys will be able to read in race car engineering. Um, to to a point where it's nice and simple, like you said. You know, realistically, they've had some challenges uh, with electronics, but once they've got those under under control, they'll be able to just putts around. And essentially, if they keep to their target lap times, they could be even real chance for this after 24 hours.
1: Stuart Mitchell, who's joining me, John Hindorff, and Andrew Cotton, the editor of Racecar Engineering, and this Haggerty Radio Le Mans special as we try to delve inside and, and give you a uh, shine a little light, perhaps, on what is LMH and Hypercar, the top class at this year's 2021 Le Mans 24 Hours. Now, Andrew, for most people, the red-hot favourites are the red cars at the front of the field. All right. Um house are, are red as well, so the red and white cars at the at the front of the field. And that will be Toyota. They've enjoyed success over uh, the last few years with their outgoing uh, purebred prototype. Their new car is the GR for Gazoo Racing uh, 010, um, so they've kept a, a, a similar uh, naming uh, um, Uh, protocol for the cars Uh, this is an all-new car from Toyota Um, there's some new technology in it but essentially you can't unlearn what you knew from all those years competing so it does look rather like the outgoing car and I suspect that that's no accident
0: no, this is exactly what they're intending to do. They're very proud of their history, having won Le Mans you know, <laughs> now so many times. Um, and so they wanted to have a nod back to the LMP1 era in their new design. But it is a completely new design. There's uh, the very little carryover from uh, from what they had to what they have now. Um, it, if, you know, just on the basic uh, points of it, from the narrow point of view, you only have one adjustable device so you can't, they, they have it at the rear of the car. So they have an adjustable rear wing. Um, they can't balance that at the front with any other uh, aero right. devices. The, the bodywork is homologated for five years. Glickenhaus, on the other hand, has a front aero adjustable device. So it's actually housed in the nose. Um,
1: so their rear wing with those uprights on it, uh, that is fixed. They can't change the profile of that.
0: They can't change the profile of it, not wow, for five okay. years. Um, the, o- the only thing that you're allowed to change, even between circuits, is the uh, braking ducts. You're allowed to blank them off a little bit, or, or to release them, depending on on the weather temp- on the weather. Uh-
1: yeah, on the, on the on the ambient temperature. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Number so one
0: is the power output, so it's limited at five hundred and twenty kilowatts. Um, at Le Mans this year, they've reduced that to five hundred and fifteen. Um, the Glickenhaus has a maximum of five hundred and twenty, while the Orica, uh the maximum that they have is four hundred and fifty. Um, and so, this is actually this is absolute maximum. You. In the old lmp one era, the hybrid drive would boost power. So it made sense to have it as powerful as you possibly could uh, and give yourself that extra drive. This is completely different. You have This is your maximum, whether it comes from a combination of uh, engine and hybrid, just engine or just hybrid. Mm. This is all that you can produce. And so it becomes a lot more of an efficiency formula.
1: It also, Stuart, becomes far more technically difficult to balance those, those outputs from the internal combustion engine and the electric motor to keep it under the, the power cap that the ACO and the FIA um, have mandated. And in fact, this is one of the things that Toyota really like, funded this programme, as Andre said, by their R&D, Road Car Research and Development Programme. This is all about different items talking to each other because ultimately here, this is an infinitely variable almost. Oh, we need to turn the engine down a bit here because the the, the hybrid electric motor side of things is providing is providing us with the the motor of power at the moment and this for me is very interesting um, but but sounds tremendously complicated
2: <laughs> you'd think it's complicated because it is you're absolutely right so oh, um, having <laughs> having having two independent drive systems that have completely different characteristics It is very difficult to, to bring together. So, of course, an engine has an RPM range, and within that RPM range, it has a peak torque RPM, and that is married to the amount of fuel it's using at the time, and in this case, what the turbocharger pressures are, and so on and so forth. Then, of course, with an electric drive system, you can essentially produce 100% of its torque at zero RPM, so you can ask for it and, and deliver it pretty much any time that you want. Um, so essentially what in this case they're going to be augmenting each other a little bit they're going to be supporting each other so when the engine's not at its peak torque you're going to be bringing in the electric drive system to either speed up the car and speed up the output drives to the point where the engine can take over and then that's peak torque starts to to come in or of course if you're running low on battery you just want to give it a little boost. That could even happen between gear changes. You know, oh, wow. the way that they set this up can be really up to them. And, and certainly in the LMP1 era, they learned a lot about this. And they were very different in their approach compared to the, the Audi and the, and the Porsche um, because that's what their ethos was. And so they've brought that forward. And like Andrew was saying, you know, this is not just a homage to LMP1. They're very much taking their technology and their thoughts and ideas that they've developed there.
1: And is there any driver input to this, Stuart? Does that mean that the poor drivers are having to learn an even more complicated steering wheel and and pull back paddles and turn buttons? And, you know, I I know when you drive a hybrid or an electric car on the road, you you have things like recharge paddles rather than gear shift paddles. You have different modes that uh, save the battery, use the battery, recharge the battery. Or is all of this going to be happening pretty much automatically
2: it's a bit of a balance there's some some parts of this that the drivers will be able to control and the teams will want the drivers to control as a function of tyre degradation and things like that so as the car becomes a little bit more difficult to to handle towards the end of a stint um, they obviously want to keep it pointing in the right direction they don't want to start saturating tyres beyond their 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 windows so the driver will be able to sort of adjust some elements to, to make sure that when he asks for full potential, um, he gets it, but it's not going to you know, gonna you know make things too scary. Um, but on the other side of things, there's a lot of automated systems on board. Yeah. Um, so for whilst he demands full throttle, um, the way that that's sorted out in terms of the powertrain deployment is completely automated. Uh, so you won't be able to choose exactly how much uh, electric versus engine you get.
1: I wonder if they're going to have one of those cool displays in the middle to show where their power to each wheels coming from which I really like when I'm driving hybrid cars and so you, you get that really nice warm feeling when you manage to put one more mile back in in your range I, I suspect they'll be a bit busy <laughs> for that and thank goodness they're not having to get the the slide rules out whilst they're driving down the Lindoat and Adier the Mulsan straight at uh, the 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 hybrid cars, Andrew, have the advantage, and it is an advantage, as we've seen down through the years, of having the hybrid mandated on the front wheels. So effectively, at times, they are all wheel drive, um, and that will give them an an advantage in some situations, although when that can be deployed
0: is strictly controlled. It is, and they haven't actually stated when it will be controlled yet. So uh, anything in the in the wet, when you have four-wheel drive, obviously you have an advantage. You have uh, extra drive out of the corners. Um, and they have a minimum speed limit, which as yet they haven't revealed to us what it is. Um, but that just gives them, you know, uh, as you come out of the corner, they are two-wheel drive, and then the hybrid can come in and deploy at four-wheel drive. And so this was... Uh, one of the conditions for Aston Martin when they wanted to come in with the Valkyrie, they, they agreed that this would be the case. Um, subsequently, the Aston Martin programme was cancelled, but the rule has still stayed. And, and the balancing of two-wheel drive versus four-wheel drive is one of the major headaches that the ACO and FIA technical teams have to get their heads around because there's so much more opportunity to tune the car and to uh, to set it up around a, a course
1: now, now Just, you've brought up the thorny problem of BOP, balance of performance, equalisation of technologies, because if the good side of the uh, LMH regulations from the ACO and the FIA is that come one, come all, and fit within there. And it's not quite run what you brung and a drag race that I used to enjoy so much. But it, it, it is trying to attract as many people and be something to as many manufacturers as possible. That's the upside. The downside is you get a, cars built with different philosophies and different technologies, as you've heard just from the three that we'll see uh, and be talking about on Haggerty Radio Le Mans for this year. So there has to be something in place, Andrew and Stuart, that brings that together. First of all, let's just talk about what we have now, because it's actually that the pillars, as they are calling them, will actually take us into the future. And, and then we can start quickly talking about the future. There are four pillars of performance that the, the authorities are looking at globally. Uh, fuel and fuel usage, uh, tyres. Uh, aero uh, and uh, and braking capability uh, as well. And this is this is quite interesting, Andrew, that that will be used this year to determine within a, a fairly small uh, representation of what we will see in the future. But I, I've called them pillars because they do. And actually, they do provide a cornerstone for something that looks quite robust in in terms of, of looking forward to the many more manufacturers and the many more solutions that we'll see in the future.
0: Yeah, so we've had many conversations with the FIA and ACO over the last couple of uh, races just to try and get our heads around exactly what it is that they're trying to achieve. So what they've done is they've put the cars into a performance window. Uh, so this performance window is fixed for each manufacturer and uh, every setup that the manufacturer can create out of their adjustable aero device and and uh, ride heights and so on the car must perform in this aero window so it's all been tested it's all been homologated it's all been fixed and so that is where they want each of the cars to perform they then have the balance of performance which moves make sure that they all stay within that window uh in all situations um in terms of balancing the cars it's a little difficult, but they have succeeded in doing so in the GTE category mm. with an aut- automated system that the FIA is very much uh, in favor of. And what they've explained to us uh, is that they will continue with this auto BOP, but as yet they haven't seen anything that triggers an automatic uh adjustment. So right now... What because
1: there's a parameter, isn't there? There's a percentage parameter that if you go outside, either up or down, then they have a look at it and potentially could make some changes.
0: Yeah, or the change is already recommended to them as it is in GTE. Mm. So This is what they're looking at. And they said at the moment they're doing it manually, but they haven't actually achieved a situation where the automatic BOP has come in and said that they've done something wrong. So what they're doing now is running the cars on track, seeing where they are on each particular type of track, whether it's a different surface, different altitude, different temperatures that they're running, different uh, type of circuit, whether it's a high speed, low speed. Uh, And they're gathering as much information as they possibly can. And then as the new manufacturers come in, as the new cars come in with the new design concepts, then they they have a robust set of figures that they can work to and they can balance them with a reasonable amount of confidence.
1: The problem with all of that, Stuart, and it's always been this way for Le Mans, is how do they stop people deliberately underperforming earlier in the season, possibly even at the Le Mans test day, because Le Mans is the big race that everybody wants to win. Uh, Our listeners will hear people talking about sandbags being thrown in. It's not just as simple as putting extra weight in the car. Surely there are things that drivers can be told to do in terms of lifting and coasting, changing gears at, at different revs. How do the gamekeepers stop the poachers from nicking a little bit of time and performance and hiding it away?
2: It's very, very difficult. And this has always been the difficulty with balance of performance. And this takes us back a little bit to what the ACO tried to do with the LMP1 category, where they had an equivalence of technology, whereby it wasn't It wasn't the same techniques they were trying to use to keep the cars competitive the equivalence of technology allowed for different fuel types different engine configurations different power outputs um, and different energy recovery devices and all sorts but now they're essentially doing a target lap time and working that backwards to try to work out where each car is effective uh, where it's essentially going to put in a purple sector Uh, And then what will happen is they'll they'll try to work out whether or not that will be continued through the other sectors Mm. and and whether or not they need to bring them down. So the cars are going to be very different as BOP allows for, which is great. Um, But in terms of sandbagging, it doesn't it doesn't stop you at all. So there's there's a lot of a lot of ideas that, you know, that the teams will have and certainly those who who are more creative will be able to be. Uh, a little bit slicker when they're trying to hide their potential performance. Um, But realistically, Le Mans is a 24 hour race. You want to have a car that the drivers can exploit at high 90% for the entire race. What you don't want is to have a car that you can only drive at 100% for 5% of the time. And if you don't get it right, you're in a wall. Hmm. So you don't want to always show all of your cards early. That's quite obvious, Um, but at the same time, it's got to be compliant. It's got to be, be behavior-wise. Behavior it's got to be the same throughout the race or at least very consistent in terms of its performance degradation over a stint. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so you get to the end of the 24 hours.
1: Yes, exactly so. Exactly so. Uh, now, before we leave what we've got this year and start to look a little bit further forward, but we're trying to explain LMH, the top class for, for this year. Stuart, from you, very quick questions. Three different engine uh, engines in the back of the cars. There's nothing spec about this class as far as the engine's concerned. We'll go in the reverse order to which we talked about them. Toyota, what is their internal combustion engine configuration, normally aspirated, turbocharged, capacity, etc.?
2: Yeah, so Toyota have changed their platform from the LMP1, uh, which was a smaller capacity, to now a three and a half litre V6 turbocharged. This is a twin turbo uh, that will put out about 680 PS, so similar in horsepower, 680 horsepower to the rear wheels combined with a 272 horsepower motor generator unit on the front axle
1: they used to run a 2.6 didn't they the lmp p1 hybrid days what what's the, what's the reason for that does that give them more flexibility in this rule set that we've said is almost infinitely variable in particularly in your engine configuration
2: yeah absolutely. So this is where it becomes quite interesting because the output is capped at five hundred kilowatts or about six hundred and eighty horsepower um, they won't be able to deploy both the front drive system and the engine uh, at the same time at full capacity um, because of course that would exceed this, which means that what they'll with the three point five it means they 've got more torque from that naturally they 've got more torque from it, which means that when they do shift from the e-drive system to the engine back and forth as they're deploying energy, um, they'll have a bit more torque than they would have done from the 2.6, which would have been running the entire time in the old LMP1 category.
1: All right. Glickenhaus, the other new for 2021 top-class prototype. What's what's behind the drivers there?
2: So that one is a V8 engine, um, turbocharged. And this is something that, like I said, is, is going back to what people have been best at um, and so it's going to be a really reliable um, system, and it's just going to allow them to keep churning around and to keep within the, the potential of that engine quite well, regardless of the boost uh, the boost curves that they're given by the ACO.
1: Now, they've been used to building two-litre four-cylinder engines. As you said, they've, they've married uh, two together. So is that somewhere near four litres? Is it that big?
2: Uh, that's my understanding, yes. So right. what we've, what we've uh, heard from, from Jim and the team is that uh, essentially that's exactly what people have done for them. Okay. Um, so it's around that.
1: Okay. We're, we're having to make a few assumptions dear listener, because uh, this new technology, as some of it's still been kept under wraps. Much easier, Stuart, is that venerable Gibson engine in, in the back of the Alpine. That is, that's yes. another
2: big rumbling V8. It is, yeah, another 90-degree V8 here. It's naturally aspirated, uh, from Gibson. House, but uh, sorry, <laughs> from Gibson. Sorry, um, but then of course you've got to remember that this is an engine that's evolved over time. So when Gibson originally designed this engine, um, it was part of the, uh, the the LMP2 concept for a spec system. So what they were doing is they were given a a a spec from the aco um and then they were producing that for the 2017 uh lmp2 category onwards um then of course as an lmp1 unit it's a little bit bigger capacity which yeah. changes a lot because they start with combustion and then they build the engine around that so you hit an lmp1 when it was used as an lmp1 engine it was fuel flow limited and then they kept changing the fuel flow um, to try to balance the cars out with um, with the other cars in the LMP1 category. So when this was a rebellion um, car in LMP1, um, non-hybrid, obviously they could run the car lighter, but it was uh, it was difficult because they had to kept changing the fuel flow. So I think it was 100, then it went down, then it went back up to 115. <laughs> so that made it very difficult. So it wasn't really optimized for that that setup, whereas now, of course, you, you basically spec the fuel flow rate uh, as a function of, of how much um, uh, how much power you want from the car, which is, as Andrew explained earlier, uh, set out by the ACO for the um, balance of performance.
1: And that's now four and a half litre, that uh, that engine uh, V8. Uh, you'll hear that one coming. It's got a nice sonorous sound. All right, that's what we've got now. Three very different cars, um, two of which are pure LM. H hybrids, uh, excuse me, uh, hypercars, LMH hypercars as termed by the ACO. Um, that's what we've got to look forward to this year. All that technology, all that technical detail means nothing if they can't all race together and give us a race. Uh, we'll discuss, I'm sure, in... Uh, The lead up and through the race here in Haggerty Rachel you Le Mans, um, whether the LMP2 cars using a slightly smaller version of that Gibson engine will be in the mix. Um, I think all of us here would say they probably would be, but it'd be remiss of us in the time that we have remaining, Andrew, not to talk about the future. Le Mans is often a place where things get uh, announced and we already know, in fact, some of the things that are coming. And in LMH and Hypercar, the two biggest manufacturers who have committed already to add to the ACO's vision of global Hypercar are Ferrari. But first, let's talk about Peugeot, because Peugeot have come using the same regulation set that we've talked about and come up with something in the Peugeot 72, the 9x8, that is distinctively different uh, Nine times, it's 9x8. I say 9 times 8 because 72 is the Department of the South, and I'm sure that's absolutely why they have, they have, <laughs> they have done it. Um, they've come with something that doesn't look like anything else at the moment and has used those regulations in a very different way and come at it with a different mindset, presumably exactly what the ACL were hoping for when these regulations came out.
0: Well, absolutely. They've come with a design that is ground effect, so they don't need a downforce generating rear wing. Um, I said that deliberately because uh, when I've been talking to people who have designed ground effect cars before, um, they say that you need something to, at the rear of the car to be able to trim it and to be able to run it properly. So I do expect the Peugeot to come with some kind of adjustable device at the rear in order to make it work. But fundamentally, it doesn't have a downforce-generating air wing. You don't need it. The,
1: so we're not uh... talking about an aero wing, as we would see on most single-seater or prototype racing cars up on struts, either a central strut or or two end-wing struts that that is effectively an upside-down aeroplane wing that you can trim out and move there. We're talking about something that doesn't have that. It's almost a flat rear deck, and effectively what you're talking about is a little trim strip, almost like a gurney flap, something a bit more sophisticated uh, than that, to trim the balance of the car for for different circuits, different ride heights, etc.,
0: That's basically it. So, because the downforce levels, basically what they have done, the rulemakers looked at the old LMP1 cars and they decided that they weren't the best looking things on the planet. (laughs) Um, And they they were all designed in the wind tunnel because you're looking for maximum downforce and, and efficiency. So, what they decided was if you take that need for downforce away, then you, suddenly you put the uh, the design team back in charge and you can more easily go back towards mm-hmm. what we had in the 60s and 70s where the cars were designed according to what the designers thought a car should look like. Um, we're slightly away from that in that the marketing departments have a lot more uh, input into it. And we certainly see that with the Peugeot. It has a lot of marketing uh, styling cues on it. But you can go away from this downforce generator, you can go away from this uh, need to to produce this hyper efficient but maximum downforce car with a load of power. And so therefore, we finished up with a car, a ground effect car from Peugeot, where a lot of the downforce is created from under the body. And what they have needed to do, one of the key key parts of the regulations is to show stability in your so when a car is going sideways need to show that it's not going to uh, take off. Uh, Or less easily take off. So the the takeoff speed is going to be much higher than the car can actually go. That's the idea of it. And Peugeot has managed to achieve that with intelligent use of uh, fins over the rear wheels and a small fin over uh, over the engine cover. Um, But that's pretty much it. They said they don't need a downforce generator at the back or at the front. What they have is enough downforce coming from underneath the car to meet the regulations. Uh,
1: We've seen a mock-up of that car. Indeed, you had a good crawl over at Monza WEC before uh, Le Mans. Persia say the finished car will look as close to that as they can possibly make it. But of course, they've uh, they've got to replicate their their uh, computer simulations in the real world, so there may be a few nips and tucks. It does look like a Peugeot at the front, there's no doubt about that. It's absolutely got their design uh, design architecture uh, there uh, I, and uh, I'm sure when we actually see that car and it runs, we'll be talking about how important pitch and ride height is to that car, to to downforce. Um, we'll probably leave that for, a, for another day. Uh, the other uh, the other major name, Stuart, is... Oh, that's a 2.6. That's another 2.6 V6, by the way. We should say that's been, uh, that's been announced. Um, and that will be twin turbocharged uh, as well. Um, the other big name, and it's possibly... All right, for the French Peugeot, having, having Peugeot there is a huge name, but probably one of the biggest names in any form of motorsport, whether it's Formula One or, indeed, with a rich history in sports car, Racing uh, uh, as well is Ferrari. Now, that is a big win for the ACO and Ferrari have said we're in. Some dispute about what they would come in with, but they've said they're going to build a bespoke racing car. It won't be built uh, on a road car. That's massive news. Um, Ferrari are a bit busy trying to make the Formula One team work at the moment, so... They're going to outsource some of the building of, of this car. But great excitement for a car that we actually don't really know very much about yet.
2: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And and to be honest, you know, having Ferrari back at Le Mans is in, in the top class, you know, with the potential for the outright win is is something special that some people will have remembered from back in the day. But um, just just touching on both of these these LMH cars, you know, they, they are as bespoke as you like in in a lot of the areas. So, you know, with Peugeot obviously announcing they're going for a 2.6, this comes back to our previous discussion where if they bring a road car engine in that 2.6, they may have bigger brakes um, to make make it uh, do what it needs to do for for this category. And so with that in mind, if you look back at what Peugeot have done in recent history, um, they brought a three litre, Um, diesel to Dakar Mm -hmm. and you know that was a world away and that was a road car engine and that was a world away from what you get if you buy the 3008 for the road um, because the 3008 Dakar had you know, a hell of a lot more potential, and it was a really, really impressive piece of kit. So here's where Peugeot have already proven that they can take a road car engine and make it absolutely savage. So here's another chance for them to do that with the 2.6 they might bring out. So going on to Ferrari, of course, Ferrari have recently launched a series of road cars um, that are hybrids, and these cars are absolutely insane. They have way, way too much potential for the road. Um, you know you can saturate all four tires whenever you feel the need to do so if you have one of these cars, so power output and meeting emissions and things like that you know they 've obviously been able to do that for the road um with a hybrid setup so it's it's quite clear that obviously they've their their performance in Formula One will be brought into this their performance in the road car side of things will be brought into this, and again, if they go for a road car based platform, they might have bigger brakes here as well. Hmm.
1: Excellent. And, of course, they can now draw on the uh, the fan potential of uh, of uh, Valentino Rossi to come and drive uh, for them as well uh, by 2022, 2023. They should have got him up to speed by then. Uh, but that's the carbon based uh, part of the car behind the steering wheel rather than the carbon based part of the car that you hang all the bits on. Um. We have to finish, Andrew, in the in the time that we have remaining, with uh, with a, a look forward uh, to another French manufacturer who we believe are going to want to come to Le Mans, and that is Alpine, the performance arm. We've talked about their recycled re- rebellion for this year, the the grandfathered car, that is uh, undoubtedly a, a prelude to them coming in to the top class. Um, They've slightly muddied the water for this programme where we're talking about LMH and Hypercar because it seems that they are going to go the other way, which is the other part of the global prototype regulations, which is called LMDH. It's IMSA's view of things and is essentially the next generation of what is their DPI, their top class. But Alpine coming in, making... Noises about this. Has it? Uh, does it surprise you that they want to go LMDH, the other side of the regulations, rather than the the rule set that we've been talking about in this show?
0: No, because it doesn't actually make a huge difference. Um, for a manufacturer to come in with an LMH, it means that they can design a car from the ground up and they can uh, dictate. The hybrid system, the motors, the engine, uh, the aero, they can do whatever they like uh, within that performance balance uh, or performance window, and it is then balanced, so it runs in that window. You can also come with a chassis that's designed uh, or built by uh, either Orica, uh, Delara, Multimatic, or Ligier, and... Uh, That is the basis of the new LMP2 as it will come in future. Uh, Not quite sure how that's going to work, Um, but but the manufacturers...
1: That's a whole show in itself right there, to be honest.
0: Yeah, I mean, we can go into that if you like, but I think for the purposes of this conversation, we just say they're going to come with one of those. Um, It's... is a cost-effective way of coming into uh, the top class. You are still performance balanced. Uh, You are still able to run all over the world. It gives you nothing other than a cheaper way of coming in. That's that's essentially what we're looking at. Um, You won't have the same uh, autonomy over the design. You won't have the same uh, freedom in terms of bringing in road car technologies, in terms of the hybrid system is spec, um, and it is only rear-wheel drive. But – You can come, you can race, and it's not the most expensive uh, program in racing.
1: Well, hopefully we've that's in the future as well. Of course, with that uh, particular category, LMDH joining in at Le Mans in 2023, the 100th anniversary year, which by my count at the moment could have and probably will have something uh, into double figures as far as manufacturers are concerned. And that LMDH is the way that the Volkswagen uh, AG brands of firstly Porsche and Audi and potentially subsequently some of their other brands uh, including Lamborghini uh, will be coming in and also Acura, Honda, who are competing in the forerunner to that in the US at the moment, and a GM brand, probably Cadillac as well. They're already competing, uh, those latter two, in in the IMSA series uh, with the current style uh, of that car, which is called DPI. Could get very interesting in 2023, but don't write out, uh, don't write out if you're thinking 2021. So as you've heard there, in LMH, the top prototype category, not a huge amount of cars but three very different philosophies and three very different ways of making the omelette. They're all going to have to crack eggs at some stage of the game but who's got the best tasting one at the end of 24 hours is still very much up for grabs and outside of that the winner may yet still come from outside that class and the more venerable and proven reliability of an LMP2 car. Almost happened in 2017, and we'll be talking about that in other programmes here on Haggerty Radio Le Mans. For throwing some light on LMH for 2021, my thanks to editor of Race Car Engineering, Andrew Cotton, and also from Race Car Engineering, Stuart Mitchell. I feel as though in so many ways, gentlemen, I am more informed, but in some ways, even more conflicted and confused about who has taken the best package. And ultimately, that might not be a bad thing for Le Mans this year. Not a dead duck, plenty to talk about. And we'll have it all here on Haggerty Radio Le Mans.